Welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black in Annapolis, Maryland. Today we have a special guest, uh, Claudia Hauer. Claudia is a tutor at St. John's College and also a visiting professor of philosophy at the United States Air Force Academy. Uh, she's here today to discuss her new book, Strategic Humanism, Lessons on Leadership from the Ancient Greeks. Claudia, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on this podcast. Um, also like to acknowledge our colleague, Lisa Ben Boxel, and uh, the loss of her earlier this year, and um, just acknowledge the work she did to bring this combination of a tribute to the veterans community and to our great books community together. So thank you so much, Brian, Jeff. No, thank you for that. And, and thank you for coming on. And uh, we're super interested to talk about this book because it, it, it fits right into a lot of the things that we're trying to do with the program. So uh, what I'd love to do is start off with just, you know, how did this idea of, of writing about kind of strategic humanism and leadership um, and using the ancient Greeks as the touch point, like how did that idea come about? Well, it came about slowly and in pieces. I, uh, I have a PhD in classics, um, but I have been interdisciplinary at St. John's. But I've noticed that I tend to continue to be drawn to the ancient Greeks. Um, I had written some essays that I had kind of given as lectures at St. John's. And I hadn't really thought about stringing them together, but at some point I kind of I became aware that they all had a very similar theme, which is that they all tried to draw attention to the, um, to the human ingenuity that can't be captured or can't be kind of summed up by the typical Cartesian narr sort of narratives of what constitutes leadership, what constitutes intelligence. Um, and, I, and I realized that was what I was really interested in was a view of, of pre-technocratic humanism in which all of the qualities of the human um, of, of, the, of human ingenuity could be drawn together. Um, so, so I started to think about stringing the, the essays together around that theme um, and just it kind of just worked. Um, yeah, I mean, my time at the Air Force Academy, uh, as Jeff knows, I know he's also served as a visiting professor. Um, you, you really notice how technocratic the thinking is. You really notice that the hard sciences are just revered and the humanities are thought of as fuzzy. And I started thinking about looking back to the ancient Greek characters as a way to make um, a defense of these, these quote unquote fuzzy qualities that have to do with creativity, um, the art of interpretation, intuition, um, a, a sense of when it's right to take a risk, um, and all these other qualities that can't be summed up by data or um, um, what's, what's the word, um, intelligence. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's how the book came about. And then at, once, I, once I realized it was gonna work, that I could string it together chronologically, with Homer, Herodotus, Thucydides, and then looking at, at the end of it at Aristotle, at the, at the birth of moral philosophy in the West, after the, the, the vacuum that was left with the, with the Athenian hubris that led to the, um, that led to the end of the, um, uh, the defeat in the Peloponnesian War. 
um, then it, it just became kind of a fun job of kind of patching it all together. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the book is very expansive, you know. <laughs> just just dealing with Homer and Thucydides and Herodotus and, you know, no big right. deal. <laughs> and, and trying to make all that work in a modern kind of military, you know, uh, way or be able to explain it in a modern military way. Something I, I'd love to touch on, and I know I told you before we started recording, we we're going to talk about Achilles first. But since you brought up um, kind of pre-Cartesian and post-Cartesian, this mm. is this is... This is, I think, a huge deal at St. John's. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I, I say I think because I never actually, like, I went to St. John's, obviously, but I never hung out ever mm-hmm. at St. John's. And so I just kind of caught these passing things like, are you a pre-Cartesian or post-Cartesian? <laughs> like, what? Is that a thing? Like, is, are, we, are we debating this or, like, are we talking about it? So I'd love if you could kind of give, like, an intro for our audience so when we're talking about this pre-Cartesian versus post-Cartesian. And when I say by my audience, I mean me, uh, like if you could kind of break that down for the audience that might not be familiar with the kind of pre to post Cartesian kind of uh, thoughts. Yeah, well, you know, I don't think anybody should be anti-Cartesian. I mean, uh, I, what I tell my, my students is that if Descartes hadn't done that, someone else would. It was there to be done, as Martin Heidegger says. Um, I think the problem comes about when we try to apply that kind of, I mean, I guess what we mean by Cartesian is we mean we're using some kind of strict um, rational capacity that assesses data and um, makes some judgment about whether the argument is is strictly logical. Um, And obviously that that kind of... um, that's led to the world we have, right? In which we have this phenomenal quality of life. We have phenomenal healthcare. We have, uh, I don't mean phenomenal in practice, but we have access historically to- Historically speaking. Yeah, historically speaking, we've raised the quality of life for, for millions and even billions of people across the world. But the problem I think comes when you bring that kind of desire to push away all of the irrational elements of human judgment and human decision-making, all of those things that Aristotle called attention to, like our, our intuition and our sense of whether the timing was right and our, our spirit of give and take. Um, when we try to push those away and insist that leadership decisions get made by this strictly rational model, I think we're, we're taking something that was intended for the sciences and trying to apply it to human affairs. And in that respect, maybe it's healthy to think about returning to a kind of pre-Cartesian definition of humanism in which the human is embraced for all of her qualities. She's got reason, she's got her spirit, she's got her appetites, but all of those are unified in the Aristotelian model as as a kind of of very um, unified model of the human soul. And I, I think that is a useful that is a useful antidote to many of the um, imbalances of technocracy that we're seeing today. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. So if, if I'm uh, following you, there's at least two main uh, portions of the Cartesian or technocratic worldview. One is that um, the real things are numbers, the things (laughs) that we know best and are most real and rationally comprehensible are numbers. And so where possible, we should try to turn everything into numbers because that's when we'll really know it. But there's this other part that you touched on, which is, is really interesting to me, the sense that certain parts of the human character are problems to be solved. 
Mm. Right. And and that aspect of Cartesianism or uh, technocracy uh, tries to turn those things into numbers for the sake, I guess, of getting rid of them. Do you think that's fair? Mm. And do you have some sense of where that comes from or how those two things go together? The number part and the we are problematic creatures that need to be fixed part. Well, that's really poignant in the age of coronavirus, because I think what people are confronting is that we can't solve the problem of how to be human right now in the age of coronavirus. All of our assumptions about um, kind of a libertarian assumption that we might have made about the way we move around in society, all of those have proved invalid now that, now that we assume we're adopting personal risk as soon as we um, get into proximity with another human being. Um, so I, I, I do think that's really poignant that, that these things worked very well when it was an issue of um, developing penicillin, developing an antibiotics, developing painkillers. We can get rid of certain problems in the human condition, but I, I do think we're coming around to a point where we see you, you can't turn the way things are right now into a number and just develop a drug to, to fix it. Yeah, I think, you know, I... I do a little bit of kind of, I don't know, management consulting type of stuff. And a, a, a really pretentious way that I have of describing like problem sets is breaking them down between techne and episteme. And I'm pretty sure I ripped this mm -hmm. off of Jeff mm -hmm. from at some point. <laughs> but, you know, the techne being the root word of technological, right? That's something that is very concrete, very measurable. Um, and it's very if then, if you have this problem, apply this level of technical expertise and you will get this outcome and this solution. As opposed to episteme, which is, you know, in, in my mind, and you guys can correct me because your creek is a lot better than mine, just how everything interconnects, right? And it's not really about measuring that, it's just about seeing the interconnectedness and, and taking that into account. Um, and I'm wondering, and this is probably a question for both of you since both of you have, have taught at the Air Force Academy, um, and it, and it also might tie into why you decided to write this book, and you've already mentioned this to a degree, the technological alliance um, that you know the Air Force kind of uh, approaches warfare at. Something that I've, I've seen, and, and you guys were closer to this than I have, I've been, because I, I have a good friend of mine who's a colonel in the Air Force, and she somehow, somehow I agree to go to all of her changes of command, um, even though I really don't want to. And she doesn't listen to the podcast, so it's fine. But... <laughs> um, and every time we go, uh, you know, a lot, we both got commissioned in 2000. So we've both been in this kind of global war on terror era of stuff. Um, the Air Force, they, they literally every change of command, uh, except for one where she was uh, at Fort Bragg um, uh, and she had a SOCOM billet, talk about like body count and have this very attrition warfare uh, mentality, which I didn't even really know the Air Force had until I started going to the extent that they do until I started going to these changes of command where everything needs to be measured. Mm -hmm. And your effectiveness on the battlefield is measured by these measurements. And as a Marine, you know, we are maneuver warfare folks whose goal is to defeat the will of the enemy, not to even defeat the enemy. We don't care about that. So I'm wondering, you know, not, not that you were steeped in maneuver warfare lore before you, you know, went to the Air Force Academy and had to deal with that, but just dealing with, I feel like uh, maneuver warfare deals with the humanity or deals with humans um, as people that conduct war and the attrition warfare mentality 
uh, does seem to deal with machines as the most effective way to mm-hmm. kill your enemy, which is the goal of attrition warfare. So I'm just wondering how how receptive they, have they been to, you know, bringing up things like classical Greek like ideology ideologies um, versus how do I kill the enemy faster and better? Oh yeah, no, I, I that's uh, my first chapter kind of takes that question up, Brian. I talk about. Um, I bring up Clausewitz because I, I believe he's the one who brought in that mm-hmm. notion of defeating the will of the enemy, um, and try to try to point out that the Cartesian model is pushing us toward body count metrics um, in a problematic way. Um, I, I don't know how how receptive the Air Force <laughs> Academy is going to be to this to this book. Um, I think there are a number of us up there, and I know Jeff was a fellow traveler while he was up there, was, are trying to keep the narrative alive, that it's very important that we understand uh, that warfare is timeless. And it has to do with exactly what you said, Brian, which is that it's um, the kinds of, of demands it makes on the human being are timeless, and the kinds of um, moral dilemmas it poses to the human being are timeless. Um, you know, I, I would certainly acknowledge that the Air Force is probably right now the, the force most capable of um, buffering itself off from that narrative. I, mean, I imagine the Space Force will take over that role soon. Um, but, but I think just bringing back that acknowledgement that the Marines, the infantry, <laughs> Um, that these that these service branches have had never really moved away from those um, that that acknowledgement about warfare being a human business and human on human. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. There's yeah. there is this um, difficulty even in the within the Air Force itself between the the combat pilots, the fighter pilots especially, and the drone pilots. Right, and so the question of whether um, warfare is warfare when your own life is not at stake because you're not situated in the cockpit of the device that you're controlling, right? This is headed in this direction mm-hmm. of whether uh, the fundamental concepts of warfare can be separated from uh, the sorts of things that Homer talks about. And I was very charmed uh, by the anecdote that uh, opens Claudia's introduction, right, with the cadet who challenges her uh, about, uh, you know, why should we read Thucydides when uh, we have contemporary concerns to think about what's the relevance? Um, I certainly encountered some of those things in my classes at, at Air Force, although I had the uh, fortune or misfortune of, of uh, teaching American politics. And so as a result, we, we didn't have sources going that far back. Uh, but, uh, you know, the same question could be raised about the Federalists in some respects. Um, I wanted to ask about a, a flip side of it, because it seems, unfortunately, there are actually two kinds of difficulties when dealing with books like this um, in the contemporary military setting. The first one is the one that Claudia describes, right? Tell me what the relevance is. Show me the relevance. Um, And the second one is, um, once you see the relevance, uh, turning to the books as if there's some kind of magic eight ball that every time you have a question, you just shake them and up comes the answer to your question, Mm. right? In other words, treating them as something you bring your questions to rather than things that educate you and what the questions really are. Mm. And I wondered whether, um, because we all 
um, you know, have to deal with uh, bringing these great books to a military audience, uh, what we think of how to respond to that difficulty as well. I guess we have to steer between the two extremes somehow, right? Yeah, I, I had the honor of participating with the Air Force Humanities Institute while I've been up here and we brought in Brian Dorries. He's got a program called Theater of War. Um, he uses Greek tragedy. Uh, he started with Philoctetes and Ajax and he's, he's branched out. Um, but he, um, he seems to really understand that the books, that the, that the plays are alive. Uh, and that if you perform them, the audience will experience some some kind of catharsis. And he, at the end of the performance, he elicits testimonials um, from the combat veterans in the audience. And and it it's amazing how powerful it is. I mean, you have people standing up and saying, "Yeah, you know, talk about Ajax's suicide." I know, I know. Like, I've lost like three guys in my unit at Fort Carson to suicide. And um, so I, I think that's kind of key to what we, we need to, to remember is that it's not about, these are not textbooks. <laughs> they are um, living, living documents that we need to expose people to. Um, but I, I think Brian Dory sets a real model for how to, you know, and of course the strict classicists are always like, you're not treating them with proper respect. <laughs> and it's like, well, yes, he is. He's making them alive. And, um, if you recall that the tragedies were performed on the slopes of the Acropolis with the entire Athenian um, citizen soldier population in, in attendance, you, you begin to get a sense of their power for helping, um, for helping uh, combat veterans process the war experience. Yeah, we're we're big Brian Dorhees fans over here. Oh, good. Combat yeah. Classics. And <laughs> I feel like the, uh, the hands down the most surreal experience that I've had in quarantine so far is watching his performance on Zoom of Oedipus the King with Oscar Isaac jumping on the Zoom call, you know, and being on the screen just like you're on the screen right now and going, "Can you guys hear me?" <laughs> and you're like, "I'm in a Zoom call with Oscar Isaac. This is weird." Yeah. But then the play was uh, incredible uh, as well. Um, getting into your book a little bit more, uh, you have this fascinating uh, look at the, the meaning of Achilles' name, where you say uh, the protagonist Achilles uniquely personifies this ironic relationship between honor and loss. The very name Achilles is a Greek compound that means grief to his people. And then right after that, um, you talk about the kind of idea of grief and shame for returning veterans that Jonathan Shea writes so eloquently about uh, in his book, Achilles in Vietnam. And something that struck me, and I'd love to help if you could help me tease this out, is just the, the nature of that meaning of the word grief in the classical Greek sense and how you might think that... Um, you know, you, you make the case in the book um, that, that I, you know, is, is I think, a, a, a really good point that by Achilles leaving kind of the fighting, but still being a part of the group, and at least physically, that, um, you know, he's brought grief on the Achaeans, not only in their kind of slaughter by the Trojans, but, but also, um, you know, obviously Agamemnon's rage as the commander in chief type, but also folks like Ajax who see him as a traitor. 
And when you when you mentioned the the Jonathan Shea's examination of the returning troops from Vietnam and how the people that they were now around kind of hated them um, for what they did, but also so many of them felt betrayed by their commanders in chief for what they were asked to do. Um, and you know, you you use that word grief again um, in kind of describing that feeling to a degree for those returning veterans. So I'm just wondering if you could just kind of maybe riff on that a little bit, especially around that kind of meaning of the word in the Greek sense. That's great. Um, and I, w I will try to riff on that. That's great. Um, the first thing I think about is um, something that came up in uh, Donald Anderson, my colleague up here who edits the War Literature and the Arts Journal. He's, he wrote a book called When War Becomes Personal. He, he, went, he, he, he solicited testimonials from many veterans who were in prison because they had committed a murder during peacetime. Um, and he found that the narrative continued to be very similar, which is that they had experienced overwhelming grief at the loss of a comrade. That grief had turned to pain and then to rage. And then they had lashed out in an, in an act of violence that, of course, the, um, um, the international community considers a war crime. And, um, and, he, and he was just really interested in, I guess, let me back up. I was really interested in the way the Homeric model is unsustainable. The warrior has to bring his Aristea to its full um, inevitable end in death, in combat, in order for the ritual, the heroic cult ritual of, of um, mourning his loss, the, 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 the rituals of, of lamentation to kick in and the cycle becomes complete and the hero is now um, completed his destiny. I am very interested in that idea. Does it, is that, is that, does that have to be true for us? That the model of grief in combat has to be unsustainable. Is, is there a way we can find a way to um, pass people through grief? Um, and I, and I taught the, uh, the war literature class in the English department for several, several years up here. And I, I read all of this literature, you know, this, this, all of the, these novels that have been written like Sparta and um, war poetry, um, trying to ask the question of whether there was a way to pass a warrior through his or her grief. Um, and I, you know, honestly, Brian, I, I don't know, I think you would be the one to speak to that. I, I've tried to be really sensitive that I, as a pure civilian, I really am not someone who's qualified to talk about this. Um, well, it, I, it, it probably gets us to a point of understanding the death wish in a Freudian sense or something like that. Like I, I remember literally writing uh, an essay at the Naval Academy after you do service selection, you kind of do your spring of senior year, you do your kind of, um, focused class on like what it means to be X, right? So whether you're a surface warfare officer or a Marine officer, like you're a, you have a class that is just how to be a Marine officer. Um, and like one of the first assignments was like write an essay uh, about the end of your career. Uh, and I wrote an essay about my funeral, mm. which was a really mm. weird way to do that as a 20 year old kid. Mm. Uh, and it was like, you know, all I remember is died in combat was a major in the Marine Corps. 
Like mm. that was, that's mm. what I remember. But it's, it's, it is, you know, when you talk, when you, so when you're talking about this in your book, you know, I can relate uh, to a significant degree about these fundamental ideas about grief and death and loss and kind of what grows out of that. And also the choice of saying, I'm going to combat when I don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because that was, you know, a choice that I had where I could, I, you know, got selected for CIA before I went to Iraq or Afghanistan and I went, no, I'm, I'm going to Iraq or Afghanistan, dude. Like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not missing out on the big show. Um, so it's, but it's, it, then I get into, you know, as I'm reading this and thinking these kind of things, I start thinking about like, man, everybody is their own Achilles. And then I'm like, no, that's just me being a giant narcissist. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I feel like Jeff has probably got a much better question on this than I could do anyway. Well, I, I was just thinking on exactly this subject, Claudia, that your, your chapter is interestingly nuanced, right? Because on the one hand, you present the Homeric hero cult as a time-bound or historical phenomenon that overcame itself or uh, self-destructed even might be might be more vivid, um, precisely because it made impossible demands on the human beings who were part of it. And on the other hand, you note um, tight parallels between the experience, say, of Achilles and the experience of people returning from Vietnam or other contemporary conflicts. And I think you, you flirt with the idea that there might be a natural or inevitable or necessary connection between comradeship and um, things that we would frown on from the perspective of the, the rationalistic enlightenment law, laws of war. Um, and that for me just um, brings into stark relief and kind of poses as a question, the difference between the Cartesian technocratic solution driven approach to a phenomenon like say um, atrocities in war and the Greek humanist approach. Um, is it right to say that Greek humanism is kind of a tragic approach in the sense that it, part of it is acknowledging necessities that we wouldn't um, dispense with even if we could because we lose goods as well? Is that the way to see it? <laughs> I just finished reading The Birth of Tragedy with uh, one of my electives um, struck by where Nietzsche talks about how it was the Greeks, right? That they really understood that human life was suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else has been palliative. Um, so maybe there's a certain truth to what you say, Jeff, that um, I think we, we do continue to experience human life as suffering and certainly nowhere as intensely as in combat. So maybe that's true about Greek humanism. Um, I'd, I'd, we, love, yeah, go ahead. I'd love for you to tease that out a little bit because for me as, as, a, as a relatively no, novitiate student of kind of modern humanism right um, and I, like right now I'm leading a class in Herodotus mm. and so when I you know when I read about Achilles and, you know, the idea of war brides and, you know, pillaging and, you know, the murder of the 11 Trojans on Patroclus's funeral pyre and then working through Herodotus and, you know, Cambyses, that guy was just crazy. Like he's just, (laughs) he's just killing people left and right. But the Babylonians, like we just taught the Babylonian siege where it's like, draw like you got to pick your favorite wife or something and then they just bury the rest of them to like make you save enough bread and so when you use terms like greek humanism (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm, I'm, when I hear the word humanism, I think of things like, you know, every life is important and like mm -hmm. I own me and mm -hmm. like I have decisions mm -hmm. and the right to make my own decisions as long as I don't inflict anything on other people. Sure. And when you, when I'm reading about Cambyses and Achilles and you put like Greek in the front of humanism, I get a little confused as to exactly what you mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I think our contemporary um, kind of concept of humanism is so heavily informed by utilitarianism, which talks about our right to having a certain quality of life, um, uh, improve our pleasure and decrease our pain, or maybe a kind of Hegelian idea in which um, we're moving toward the end of history, in which everybody will have their basic human rights intact. Uh, I think it can be very hard to reconcile that contemporary kind of um, reflex with this, um, like you said, this kind of wild and woolly Greek adventurism. <laughs> um, and certainly Herodotus, you know, that I totally agree. Like nowhere is that so evident. Um, I think the humanist strain I would like to draw attention to in Herodotus is not so much um, the spirit of kind of slaughter with impunity but the spirit of um, adventure, the spirit of enlarging um, our sense of what the human capacity is. Um, you know, Sophocles' Antigone, right? Many the wonders, but nothing as wondrous as man. And um, you do have to look past a lot of um, crazy sexist, brutalist, um, you know, just, just horrible um, atrocities. But what you might find in Herodotus also is something like Cyrus, who can, I talk about this, I think, in chapter three, Cyrus, um, you know, who can, um, who can do things like um, pull out a, 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 a document and read it in front of his troops. Um, and he'd be like, what do you think, guys? This shouldn't we fight for our freedom? And um, you know, and Herodotus is just acknowledging that the, these these people are able to corral. Uh, they're so charismatic that they're able to corral um, just overwhelming um, support m morale. We talked earlier about morale and the will. Um, you know, a character like that or a character like uh, Themistocles who does some pretty under, sort of below the belt kind of things, but he's somehow able to pull it all together so that the Greeks achieve their miracle on ice victory at Salamis and pretty much save the free world. <laughs> you know, you know, I guess that's what I ask my students is like, if they had lost the battle of Salamis, where do you suppose like moral philosophy would be in the West? Where do you suppose the doctrines of individual freedom would be? Um, so it was really the Greeks, I think, who had the, who had the um, boldness um, to overcome the spirit of propriety and, 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 you know, they got the job done. <laughs> They manned the 300 at Thermopylae. They got the job done. Yeah, so that, that is what it makes me think that the concept of necessity is probably ultimately very important to you, right? Because uh, Greek humanism is not to argue in favor of the terrible things that happen in war, right? We would hope that there were fewer atrocities. We would hope that the things that Achilles did, he didn't do. 
but it might be to acknowledge some necessary subterranean non-obvious connection between those things and then the qualities that permit the defense of the 300 or persistence against the Persian army, qualities that we really admire. And uh, the thought that the human being is not sick, ultimately, mm -hmm. not, not some kind of walking illness that needs medication, mm -hmm. but is fundamentally healthy, especially if educated in the right way. Mm -hmm. that, is that the underlying thought that would say differentiate uh, the, the, what you call the, the broader, less methodologically narrow Greek approach from say our modern approach? Well, and to go back to Brian's comment about Cambyses, I think a lot of what Herodotus is trying to illustrate is that the wild excesses of the Asians, they, they were on a different trajectory than the Greeks who were really on a trajectory of developing the rule of law. So you've got Demaratus going to um, the Persian king and saying, you know, you'll never understand these people. They, they don't operate out of fear, they operate out of respect for the law. Um, and Xerxes is like, what? Like, who does that? Like, I thought just like, I thought this was about autocracy. So I right. think, I think we, we do have to look past, um, we do have to look past the atrocities and see what was developing in Greece, which were the institutions of law. I mean, granted, it was all going to come in Athens, at least to a crashing uh, end with their hubristic decision to send the Sicilian expedition at a time when they couldn't even control their own um, um, their own tributary allies, as Thucydides talks about, um, that kind of you know massive hubristic overreach that I think our country has been capable of in recent decades. Um, but but you have to look at what was developing, which was a real spirit that um, we we were going to do the human thing and we were going to do it together, and we were not going to do it in a climate of you know, just terror of the man with the lash. We were going to do it because we understood um, this thing called freedom. I mean, Jeff, you taught in a political science department. I know at the Air Force Academy, I'm sure you talked a lot about uh, America and the spirit of freedom. Um, I'd like to see that mean something again. I'd like to see that really um, become a living, um, something living. I, I worry sometimes that it's, it becomes something we pay lip service to as we bustle about um, um, paying our true allegiance to technology. To mm -hmm. go back to Brian's comment about techne. Mm -hmm. Will you, oh, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, uh, well, you, you can go ahead, Brian, because this is a, a bit of a change of subject. It's going back to the introduction. So go ahead. Well, I was going to just mention about um, you know, in the idea of Greek humanism, you make, you make this comment on, in chapter two, um, on page 21, where you say throughout Homer's epic, Patroclus is celebrated for his capacity for relationship and intimacy, an unusually deep man whose primary personal characteristics was compassion. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you go on to talk about the, um, the prophecy uh, that is, is still kind of, we don't know about it yet. You know, it doesn't show up until like chapter 18. Like we know a prophecy exists it's about Achilles. It's about him dying, but we don't really get the details. And then after Patroclus's death is reported to Achilles, um, I think by, is it Menetius? Um, it's, and it's just like an aside, but I'm, I'm really just glad you brought it out where, uh, 
I think it's Manisha's who says, you know, he was the best of the Achaeans. And he says this to Achilles, you know, and then it clicks for Achilles that, you know, the prophecy was that the, you know, the greatest of the Achaeans will perish before the fall of Troy. Mm -hmm. And so I think it brings up that question of like, maybe Patroclus, you know, maybe the compassionate man mm -hmm. who was tending the wounded and was trying to comfort his friend, you know, might just be the best of the Greeks. Oh, I love that. I, I just finished um, doing the Iliad with one of my electives and one of the cadets said, I don't like any of the characters in this book very much. And I said, well, you know, I think we were in like book, book six and I was like, well, that might change. You have yet to meet Patroclus. Um, Briseis says of him at the funeral, Briseis is Achilles' uh, concubine that was taken away uh, by Agamemnon. And she says, he was always kind to me. Um, or the moment in book six where you've got Hector and Andromache on the walls of Troy. Um, or the moment when Hector realizes that he would be ashamed, that he realizes he almost certainly faces death at the hands of Achilles, but he would be ashamed to return behind the walls because he has some kind of civic duty um, to stand on the front lines. Um, so so I, I think that's really wonderful. And, and I'm really, I, I didn't write about the Odyssey. It didn't really work in this book, but I'm really interested in that shift as we move into the Odyssey in which the more civic virtues become kind of replace the heroic virtues. Um, um, what, you know, what Bruno Snell calls the discovery of mind, right? Like maybe we need to develop, maybe we need to, to develop real internal qualities. I think it's been um, noted that there isn't much internal life in the, in the Iliadic heroes. Um, in book one, when uh, Achilles wants to kill Agamemnon, he starts to draw his sword. And there's this wonderful moment where Homer has a, uh, Athena come down and clamp her hand on, on him and just like, what are you thinking? And, and then he slowly slides the sword back in. And we, we talked a lot as a class about what, what would everybody else set, see? Because it was said that he was the only one who could see this goddess. So all they would see is the sword sliding out and the sword sliding in. And, and so where is that capacity to acknowledge that internal narrative in which Achilles wrestles with whether or not to complete the draw of the sword? Um, I think that's Patroclus definitely is beginning those things when he appears in, in tears uh, after visiting the wounded Greek heroes and he's crying. Um, and it's, I find that moment very poignant. Achilles says, what are you like a little girl running after your mother? Do you want me to pick you up? And it's hard to tell whether Achilles is being scornful or whether he's really acknowledging that there's a real internality to Patroclus's grief at the, at the predicament of the Achaean army. Um, but that's ultimately going to pull Patroclus out and pull Patroclus to his death. I, I think those are much more beautiful qualities. And I, I think going back to what I said earlier, I think they begin to replace the unsustainability of the heroic cult narrative. Yeah. And I just, uh, I want to get to your question, Jeff, about the introduction, but just so I don't have to go back and edit the pod. Uh, I don't know why I said Menetius when I met Menelaus. <laughs> I don't know why Menetius came out, but it was Menelaus on page 34. Oh, yeah, you write, yeah. the best of the Achaeans has been killed. Menelaus yeah. begins and then stops to qualify Patroclus, that is. <laughs> oh, gosh. And then there's that wonderful moment in the Odyssey where Telemachus goes to visit him and, and Helen has to drug him because he's so like, he's so like 
he can't do life, you know? So I think it ultimately becomes a question of, can you do life? Can you really do life? And, and Menelaus, he's kind of ruined by everything he's lost, but, um, um, but that's why I end the book with Aristotle. I, I really hope that the teleological ethics model that Aristotle offers in the Nicomachean ethics gives us, gives us a way to do life <laughs> by acknowledging that, okay, yeah, maybe I did that in the wrong way, Maybe I did that at the wrong time. Okay, I picked the wrong person, but I can still patch together an ethics in which I am navigating life and trying to find um, that moderate path. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Aristotle because it brings me to the question I wanted to ask about your introduction. Um, not only does it make a distinction, it's very helpful between uh, Cartesianism and technocracy um, and the Greek humanist approach, but it also suggests that within Greece itself, there was a distinction between what you call platonic rationalism and then the Greek humanist approach proper. Mm -hmm. And I take it that Platonic rationalism is a narrow approach, just like Cartesianism or Car Cartesian rationalism is, right? In contrast to a fuller um, Greek humanist approach. And you say a couple interesting things in this context about Aristotle. And now we didn't read your Aristotle chapter, but I wondered if you wouldn't be, uh, if you would be willing to say something about um, why Aristotle isn't a rationalist, according to you, or what that mm -hmm. means in the case of Aristotle. Yeah. Well, I think of Raphael's famous painting, The School of Athens, right? You've got that one little vignette with Plato and Aristotle together. You've got Plato pointing up, okay, the, the, um, the truth is going to be found in a realm beyond the realm of, of this material world. And you've got Aristotle gesturing down. No, no, as he says, this is the only world I think we're going to get. Of course, he was um, um, this pre-Judeo-Christian model. But, um, well, I think there, Jeff, I, I follow Heidegger, who, who kind of criticizes Plato by saying uh, he was the one who set the West on the path that would inevitably cu culminate in Descartes. And... You know, you brought up earlier the, how vexed our relationship is with, is with Descartes at St. John's College. I think that's, that's really, in many ways, the primary question of the college is whether, is whether the price we paid for the benefits of Cartesianism and, and, and Francis Bacon's work was worth it because it turns out to have had a, a very, um, a consequence that could not have been anticipated but a consequence in which um, the full spectrum of the humanities has been um, kind of squeezed, like you said, into this, this very narrow conviction that everything can be reduced to a quantity and, and kind of taken care of. Um, so that's kind of how I meant that statement was not to kind of diss Plato, which I would never really want to do. I love Plato, but just in terms of what I was trying to bring into being, it was more, um, we need to find a humanism that acknowledges that we're trying to be human in this material world um, with, with, with this particular planet, with, with its own particular ecosystem, which is now being um, gravely endangered by um, this unfettered pursuit of what I call techno-capitalism, right? Just like if we can make money doing it, why should we ask whether it's going to... Um, be good for the planet. Um, so that's kind of how I meant it is I, I believe Aristotle with the teleological approach, I believe he would have been more like, 
what are you doing? Like you need this planet, right? For your telos, like what? Um, um, but, and again, I don't want to, I, want, I don't want to do disservice to Plato and, and everything that he did to give birth to uh, philosophy. Um, but that's not quite the spirit of what I was trying to accomplish. And frankly, I have a feeling that's why the book is going to be criticized is because people are going to be like, you said nasty things about Plato. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> Well, to, to save you from having to say anything nasty about Plato uh, and to give you an ally in this fight, let me read a little thing I remembered from Nietzsche about Plato and Thucydides. This is from Twilight of the Idols. It's the second section of uh, What I Owe to the Ancients. He says, my vacation, my preference, my cure for all things platonic has always been Thucydides. Uh, Nietzsche talks about Thucydides' unconditional will not to be fooled and to see reason in reality, not in reason, that's in quotation marks, and even less in morality. And he says, in the end, what divides natures like Thucydides from natures like Plato is courage in the face of reality. Plato is a coward in the face of reality. Consequently, he escapes into the ideal. Thucydides has self-control and consequently he has control over things as well. Mm. So you're in good company. <laughs> Maybe Plato can, uh, can take a couple blows. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for the support. Yeah, no, I, I think that's it. That's it. I mean, if we're going to do this work of being human, we need to do it here and now, um, regardless of whatever your theological convictions might be about the afterlife, um, regardless about, um, regardless of our ability to acknowledge that the sciences would not have developed to this extent without um, this uh, Cartesian um, commitment to um, pure reason and pure data. Um, that's, that's not what it's about to me. It's, a, it's about being human. And, and again, I would draw attention, I, I guess, to this time of the coronavirus when um, a lot of people are kind of waking up to the fact that their lives of ease and comfort in a Cartesian technological um, environment here in middle-class America are, are not enough, are not enough for them to feel that their humanity is, is being realized. And, and I guess that's one thing I really hope the book will, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of trying to rewrite the conclusion even as we're going to press, um, trying to kind of point out that this is more relevant than ever. Well, uh, I think that's a great point to end on. And uh, we will put a link to pre-order the book on our show notes. <laughs> um, uh, so thank you so much, Claudia, for joining us. Really appreciated the conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Claudia. These are really interesting chapters and I'm sure it's going to be a great book. Thank you both. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. <laughs>